Hello everyone and welcome to episode 102. So today I'm going to be talking about breadcrumbing. Dun, dun, dun. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to um, find sound effects. I feel like at least if I'm going to be so shit at getting an intro sound, at the very least, the very least I could do is put some like suspense um, sound effects in there. So stay tuned for that. Um, yeah, so it's all about breadcrumbing. Breadcrumbing is, well, I'm, I'll go into it and explain it, but it's something that's very typical of a narcissist. And so if you've listened to my toxic, anything about toxic relationships, toxic psychos and red flags, what is a narcissist, all of that, including love bombing. So even a love bomber can then go from love bombing into breadcrumbing, but it is for sure a narcissistic trait but you don't have to be a narcissist to display these traits of breadcrumbing. You might just be an asshole. So that's what um, I'm going to be talking about today. And you're hopefully going to be able to very clearly identify quite quickly if you are currently being breadcrumbed by someone, if you have in the past, or if someone you know is being breadcrumbed by someone. Okay, I will go into all of that. Before I do that, quick update on my week. Um, This episode is going live on Friday 17th. So... Today, I'm actually recording this earlier, but Friday 17th, I'm actually flying finally to Queensland. Um, Cannot wait for that. I'm going into the Gold Coast. We're having like our girl on Saturday, we're having our girls Christmas kind of lunch. We do this every year with my girlfriends in Queensland, um, in Brisbane and Gold Coast. And we get together this time. It's going to be on the GC and we're just going to have a stunning lunch. Ladies who lunch, good times. Lunch will probably flow into dinner as one does. Anyway, so that's the exciting thing. Apart from that, the other exciting thing is um, the Formula One. Guys, who the fuck watched the final of the Formula One? It was such a good race. I cannot even put it into words. You could only describe it through interpretive dance. It was amazing. As you guys know, I'm a huge fan of Max Verstappen and Red Bull and he won. So thrilled about that. I actually also really do like Lewis Hamilton. There's pretty much, I pretty much like most of the drivers. So I'm a big fan of both, but Verstappen definitely is my favorite. So I was thrilled for the win, thrilled to see Red Bull winning that one. Well, Mercedes won the Constructors' Championships, but I feel like I'm boring everyone right now who's not into Formula One, so I will just enjoy that victory in my own time now. So separate to all of that, I want to do a quick brain fact and then I will go into breadcrumbing because there's quite a bit to discuss with the breadcrumbing. It's quite an interesting topic, um, quite a juicy juicy content with the breadcrumbing. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do for the brain fact is I want to discuss a drug. This is a really interesting fact. Um, I learned this at uni in uh, pharmacology. Very interesting. There's a drug that's called Ramonaband. And it was an anti-obesity drug, which was first approved in 2006 in Europe. And then it got taken off the market because it had these really extreme psychiatric side effects, which included increased um, suicide rates. So it was very, obviously the side effects were very intense. And how did it work? What was the mechanism of action behind this Ramona band? So... It was actually the first drug in its class that was approved as, it's called an inverse agonist of the cannabinoid receptor, so the CB1 receptor. So there are these cannabinoid receptors within your body, all throughout your body, it's actually very abundant, the CB1 receptors and CB2. But this one was working on the CB1 receptor. And it works on the endocannabinoid system in your body, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, receptor system in the body. Our body is full of these CB1 receptors. And 
endocannabinoids, just to quickly break this down, endocannabinoids work really similar to cannabinoids, which are present present in the cannabis sativa plant. So basically weed, like CBD, THC. So endo means within, so like produced by the human body. So it is cannabinoids that are produced by your own body. And it's an entire system produced by your own body, which is made to help regulate the signaling network within the brain. So that's like cell-to-cell communication. Your endocannabinoids work on kind of regulating what's going on between neuronal connection and cell connection in general. So it helps you relax, sleep. It helps improve memory, pain reduction. So this is why cannabinoids are also really good for memory and for pain reduction when you take, you know, when you have THC, CBD, weed, all of that, it's great for a lot of those things. It's like you look at it from a medicinal standpoint, there's so many benefits. There's like, that's a whole like 10 episodes that I could go into for that. So when you talk about two cells communicating, and I've spoken about that a lot, just going on a bit of a tangent. When you talk about two cells communicating, often when I talk about it, when I've described a lot of things, it sounds like it's like a one-way information pathway where it's like the cell that sends the information and the cell that receives the information. But the endocannabinoid system works by relaying information back to the original cell and kind of tweaking things. So it's either going to turn up or it's going to turn down the kind of the volume of certain activity within the cell interaction. Okay. So it does this by constantly, it's like a feedback loop. It gets information from the, from the receiving cell and then it gives feedback to the original cell. And that's how it helps kind of tweak what's going on with the communication between cells. So that communication is not one way. Now, what is the CB1 receptor? So it is a cannabinoid receptor. So it is a receptor for endocannabinoids, but also for external cannabinoids. So, you know, weed, when you smoke weed, when you cannabis, all of that. And they're found all around the nervous system. THC will bind to this cannabinoid receptor, the CB1 receptor, and and the CB2 receptor, which I won't go into, and it also has psychoactive effects, okay? Now, when the CB1 receptor is activated, there is a modulation and release of a whole bunch of different neurotransmitters because it is that feed-forward loop or feedback loop. So depending on where that CB1 receptor is, it's going to determine what kind of effects THC is going to have on that receptor. So if it's in the cortex, its effects are going to be more cognitive, um, and in the cerebellum and the basal ganglia, it's more movement and sedative effects. And if it's in the brainstem or in the spinal cord, then it's going to have more of an analgesic, like a painkiller effect. So now let's look at the drug that I just mentioned, Ramona Band. So this drug is kind of based around the premise that CBD and THC can make you hungry, right? Um, and also your endocannabinoids because it does work on that kind of hunger thing. So when people get stoned, they get the munchies, okay? And that's linked between like and this whole link between like reducing appetite via the system and that was the design behind the Ramona band so they thought if you block this CB1 receptor then you block this hunger feeling or the urge to eat and they found that these CB1 receptors were also found on fat cells and by blocking these you would it would lead to these fat cells essentially being broken down directly so this drug was actually super super effective however this cannabinoid receptor was also linked to mood and all these like everything to do with mood and mood disorders and all of that. And by blocking it, you're then causing a whole range of other problems. So I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, and it goes back to the whole idea of drug design and how a drug can be really promiscuous and have like a lot of functions more than like the target function that you want it to have. So given that the brain 
and I've spoken about this many times, the brain is really efficient at assuming multiple roles or assigning multiple roles to different neurotransmitters um, or to, you know, the interaction of transmitters and receptors. So it's very often that a transmitter or, or a, you know, a signaling pathway is not just going to do one thing. So it is really hard in pharmacology and drug design to target just one thing, to target just one action, you're often going to end up getting side effects because you're effectively blocking or increasing the action of this target. But then by doing so, you're then playing around with other levels and unintentional, unintended targets are being hit when that's not your like your intended target for the drug. And often, and the really scary thing is, is that especially in new drugs, um, you it, this might not be obvious until you're getting into these major, major trials where you're in like phase four where, when it's being rolled out in pretty much like all these different countries in hundreds of clinics and all of that. So that's why this one got removed off the market like pretty quickly. And it was quite obviously great that they removed it because of the side effects, but it was kind of such a bummer because it was such a, like a, a – advancement in the science of the CB1 receptors and blocking it and, and what could be done for, with, for obesity and then, you know, how bad the side effects were and that kind of had to be like taken down, which kind of is a shame for drug design, but obviously great that, you know, that drug is not out there and hurting people. So I thought that that would be a really fucking interesting thing to talk about. Brief, but interesting. Um, yeah, go look it up. Ramona Band, it's called. There's another name for it. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, but yes, I really want to do one, if not like a mini series on cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system. But I like, in order to do that, I definitely need to go back and just refresh my knowledge on all of that because there is absolutely so much information. So hold tight. I will get around to doing that because it is fascinating, the amount of science around it. And I had this incredible lecturer, Dr. Jonathan Arnold at the University of Sydney, and he worked in the, um, it was like the research, it's called the Lambert Initiative. And it was at the universe, at the Brain and Mind Center at the University of Sydney, where they do a lot of um, trials and research around cannabinoids, for epilepsy, for all sorts of things. So it's actually quite an incredible kind of research um, facility that they have there. Really, really cool. Anyway, let's get on to the topic of today, which is breadcrumbing. Great name, can I just say. So firstly, what is breadcrumbing? So it is very common in narcissistic relationships, in a lot of narcissistic relationships, if not most, and it's also really common in situationships as well. But it can be, and I'll go into it into this in a sec, it can happen with narcissistic parents, with bullies in a group, with bullying kind of like employers or bosses that are bullies as well. It pretty much is when you lead someone on, either romantically or professionally or in, in any way, when you lead someone on to keep someone interested in you. So even if you never intend to become romantically involved with that person. Like you you just want someone to be interested in you. And it's an emotional or an emotionally manipulative tactic designed to make someone dependent on you in some way, shape or form, okay? So this is very common with bullies, mainly in romantic relationships, but also toxic siblings, toxic parents or in-laws, narcissistic parents. And when I say bullies, that could also be for, you know, the toxic leader of a group when you're in high school or outside of high school and bosses. So it's really, it's also really dangerous when it's a toxic parenting style. Narcissistic parents do this to their children. Like they'll offer their kids the absolute 
bare minimum. And it goes, it kind of flows into adulthood where they always put the kid down. They always make the child feel like they're just not enough. And the child's always like fighting for love, fighting for approval. And they just drip feed them or breadcrumb them. Like they just lay out these little crumbs here and there. So when the child, even then as an adult, gets that tiny, tiny bit of validation, it feels so good because often a child who is who has a narcissistic parent, they seek so much validation from their parent because they just don't feel that loved. They feel that they are fighting for their parents' love all the time. So when the parent gives them a little thing, they're like, oh my God, I finally feel validated. So then they fight and fight and fight and work really hard for it. And for a narcissistic parent that is the ideal situation. They feel so needed. They feel so wanted when that happens. And narcissistic parents don't give a flying fuck about their children. They probably only even have children to serve their best interest. But do they actually, there's no like selfless love toward that child, unfortunately. And so it creates this really, really toxic cycle. And often you see that when they're an adult, they're really trying to make their parents proud. They're, They're doing everything to align with their parents' beliefs or their parents' expectations of them just for their parent to once say, that made me proud or good job. Like these little tiny, tiny things and that's enough to keep that child kind of wanting more from the parent. Very fucked up, okay? Now, if it's like a bully at school, for example, and we might think of examples where this has happened to us or we've seen it happen when we were in school or if you currently are listening to this and you're in high school, um, where a bully will kind of do things that make you feel like you're – like let's say they're, they're really popular and they're like the leader of their group. They might do certain things to make you feel like you're temporarily part of their inner circle, like they make you feel really included one day by being really nice to you and then they do that only to have you be like their minion to do things for them, like bowing down for them, running around for them, doing all these things for them, hoping to get a crumb of that kind of affection that they showed you that one time and then they might just give you a little scary off it again so then you're you're literally like their servant you're bowing down to them they're like the leader and you've got this like fucked up dynamic with this leader of the group obviously not every popular kid in high school is like that but it does very often happen with bullies and then of course it can happen in the workplace where a boss like doesn't give you much attention doesn't really like it's just a bit of an asshole and then occasionally will say certain things to make you feel like you've got all these opportunities or you know set up these little situations where they give you a task to do where you feel really special but then once that task is done then there's no mention again of anything so you're kind of hoping and wishing that they notice your work again because like is that actually going to happen will I, will I be promoted will I be taken up the ranks of this job or not and they're very kind of up and down, unpredictable with their behavior towards you. So it happens in all walks of life, but most of this episode, pretty much from here on in, I am going to be focusing on a romantic relationship. Now, this can happen in long-term relationships and it is very common to happen in long-term relationships. People can be stuck with someone who breadcrumbs for years, but it's also quite common to happen in someone who's playing you when you're in a situationship, you're not actually dating and you kind of really want them to date you, but it's just kind of, you know, they're not really committing to you at all. So it happens across the board in all kinds of romantic relationships. So what does it look like? Orbital ghosters also do this, by the way. What does it look like? It's someone doing the absolute bare minimum to keep you on the hook, but also it's kind of a warning, like I'm the one who decides where the line is and you need to be on high alert at all times. You need to be aware of my needs and my wants and when I want you there, you're there 
but if you turn around and start demanding things, you get fuck all from me. That's what that's kind of what they're doing. It is a form of grooming. They are setting you up to hold them in a higher esteem to be the bigger one in the relationship to be the bigger person and setting you up to be forever okay with the bare minimum and not just okay with it, to be excited when you do get the bare minimum. You're literally like thrilled when you get this one tiny little crumb. That's what they've done. It's a form of pretty much brainwashing. They can give you such little validation and such little feelings of importance. They make you feel so shit about yourself that you end up genuinely feeling like what they do give you, the little that they do give you is good enough for you and that you're almost lucky to get it, okay? And I'm going to go into some examples of this in a second. They, they pretty much put you in a position of fear and need where you, where you kind of fear losing them and you have this need to have them in your life that even when you get the fucking shittest thing from them, you are belated, And additionally, if you did listen to my love bombing episode, often, definitely not always, but often a a love bomber will end up becoming a bread, like a breadcrumber. They will breadcrumb you. So they'll start with the love bombing where it's just absolutely excessive. Go listen to that episode if you haven't already. But then they'll literally flip it around and do the fucking bare minimum. And a love bomber's got the excuse that, well, I did all of this for you. I did all this stuff. And because they have examples of when they've done shit for you, you kind of feel like you don't have a leg to stand on, even though now they're not doing anything for you or anything for the relationship. Now let's go into some examples of what this could look like. Say you've got a friend who you know is dating an absolute asshole. And it's just not a good relationship. It's a toxic relationship. And then you hear your friend say something like, no, no, he's getting better. He's so sweet. He surprised me by taking me out to dinner last night. It was so sweet. He really put in the effort. He got dressed so nicely. Like, like what? Cunt? Like, what? He took you out to dinner. That is what people do. That's what normal humans do when they are dating. They take each other out on a date, right? And that person dressed up nicely for you. When, and like when you look at the relationship, let's say your friend is talking about this particular situation, your friend probably always puts in the effort to look nice for their partner. They'll probably always go above and beyond to put in the effort and then they're getting excited because their partner dressed up and took them out for dinner, which is a fucking standard in a relationship, right? Another example would be when this breadcrumber is absolutely awful to you for ages. It's a pretty average relationship. And then they surprise you with flowers. And then you're so thrilled about it that you post these flowers all over your social media. You're like, they've changed. This is amazing. And you're just ready to brush everything else they've done in the last few weeks under the rug because you're like, they're changing. You you take one example and think this this is like a marker for change and they're getting better. It's, it's such a gesture. It's such a romantic gesture. They must actually love me. They must have just been busy. They must have this. You'll take the scraps and you'll fucking run with it. So this one bunch of flowers, you're so down and out about yourself. You've been like, you've been crushed into a fucking, worn down into a fucking nub that a bunch of flowers is like, oh my God, they're the most amazing person. When if you look at any fucking normal relationship, okay, it might not be flowers, but people will always do nice gestures for each other in a romantic relationship. It might not be flowers, but it might be like, I cooked you dinner without ever expecting a thanks. I did this for you, I did it because it should be mutual, right? But you might be going above and beyond doing everything under the sun for your partner. They do one thing like buy you flowers and you're celebrating them as the most romantic person in the world because you are brainwashed. And now this next example is so fucking sad because I've heard it a few times and I myself 
have been in this situation, the whole, oh my God, and I'm using he as an example because I've got female friends that this has happened to, but it obviously can happen in any gender, any, you know, but it's the idea of he gave me a toothbrush to use when I'm at his. Um, I'm sorry, if he is having you come over so he can stay in the comfort of his own home every time and then you have to fucking get dressed in the clothes you wore from the day before, trek at home, get home, then get ready at home before your day can begin. A fucking $2 fucking toothbrush is the absolute minimum to show that they have a skerrick of decency and that they actually like you. That is not a big gesture. Someone buying you a fucking toothbrush when you're seeing them on a regular basis is the bare minimum. If they don't think of you in that way, it means that they don't give a flying fuck or they don't want any exclusivity and they want to know that you're just a temporary thing. Do not get fucking thrilled and excited for a toothbrush, okay? Ridiculous. Most people have spare toothbrushes anyway because you buy a pack of a couple of toothbrushes anyway. So if they've given you one, just be like, thank you, cunt. It's the minimum you could do. Another one is, say you're out with your friends, your friend's always dating a really shit person and then that friend, your friend says, oh, they've offered to pick me up, they're coming to pick me up now. Pay attention when a gesture has a double meaning. So let's say you never get picked up by your partner. Your partner never offers to pick you up because they don't want to. You might have asked once and it just got turned down. It's just not something that, you know, they do. And then this one time they offered to pick you up because you're now out with your friends and they don't want you out with your friends having a great time without them. So they cut your night short, but you don't really see it that way because they're offering this sweet gesture. But they're the ones that win in the scenario. They get to cut your night short. They get you when they want you around them. And you don't dare say, oh, no, thanks. I actually want to prolong this night with my friends because when was the last time that they offered to do something nice for you? Never. So you're like, fuck, this is such a sweet gesture. They're coming all the way to pick me up. I'll take it. I'll fucking take it. You will take whatever crumbs you can get, even if it's not ideal or if it doesn't fit into your life or day or evening, okay? You will take it. And you'll genuinely believe that it is a sweet gesture. You think, oh, it's not really convenient, but how nice. Oh my God, they're changing. No, they're not. They're not changing. Another huge example of breadcrumbing, and this happens quite a lot in society, unfortunately, is when a father refers to looking after his own children as babysitting. Like, what? They are setting it up to be like, I should be rewarded for doing a task that is already my task to do. And then in many situations, because the other parent is not used to the father taking care of the child on their own, the other parent then celebrates and congratulates them for doing a task that they should already be doing, which is parenting. They might even, and this happens often, they rub the bare minimum that they have done in the other parent's face, in defense. So they'll say, you say I do nothing, what about me dropping the kids off at school? Or I spend all Sunday with them while you were out and you say that I do nothing? Yes, you did spend all Sunday with your own fucking children. Watch me divorce your lame ass and then you have them 50% of the time and then you understand what actual parenting responsibilities are. You embarrassment of a human. These people are delusional but they are, they've just gotten away with it, gotten away with it, gotten away with it. And then people have children with these sad fucks. And then they're stuck in this situation where they, well, where their partner genuinely feels entitled to accolades for parenting their own child and not, not even parenting their own child for, for doing the bare minimum within parenting with their own child. 
it's you could barely call it parenting. So that is definitely something to look out for. And if you're in a situation like that, just because you had kids with them, they are breadcrumbing you and you need to fucking stop them in their tracks. You also don't dare to pull them up on not doing something. So separate to parenting, let's say you're just dating someone, you, you're, you're too terrified to pull them up on not doing something because they will throw in your face the little breadcrumbs that they did give you. Like I took you out on that date and it was like one date a month ago or, you know, however long ago. Or don't say I don't do anything around the house. I take out the rubbish, like this one fucking task that they do, you know, and they will genuinely level what they do and put it at the same level as what you do or higher. They In their heads, they're valuing it higher than all the things you do. And everything you do goes unnoticed because they just – don't care. So why are they going to notice it? It's all about them. It's it's the show about them. So anything that you do is expected, but anything that they do should be celebrated because it is a bonus for you. That's kind of how they're viewing it. They get you in this kind of position of fear that you then can't really tell them that you want something or need something or you feel that something is unfair because you're scared that well, you know that they have no real respect for you, but you're, you need them now and you have less respect for yourself, if not no respect for yourself. So you feel scared to leave because you need them. So you just are stuck in this situation of like, I really want them to stay with me. I really want their attention. I'm lacking in all these things, but I'm just terrified to bring it up. So I won't. So you stay in this cycle. You're really upset, but then they throw you a breadcrumb and then you're like, oh my God, what if they're changing? What if this symbolizes change? And you you fall for it every time because you want to fall for it. You so badly want that person to change. You're also really afraid to ask for time or attention because they're often a, someone who does breadcrumbing or a narcissist, they often, they often look at a normal relationship, you know, where, where you might have public displays of affection or where you like quite, where you say loving things to each other. They look at that as like really intense and like really needy. Not every relationship has to be all over each other. I hate that shit. I hate it when people are all over each other. So then you think, oh, maybe that's just their style of love. Maybe they don't want something too intense. They are making, they're kind of gaslighting you into feeling that a relationship that's intimate and really affectionate is just too much and excessive when in reality it's not humans need intimacy humans need to be you know to have that physical touch that connection that loving you know those loving moments but they're making you feel like you're asking for something excessive or something ridiculous when it's actually just a basic human need you also find yourself in a position where no matter what it is that they do for work you genuinely because they've set it up that way you feel that it's more important than what you do for work so regardless of whatever the title is. They're always busier than you. They've always got more responsibilities than you. They're always under more stress than you. So don't you dare ask for more. Don't you dare put them under more stress. It's, you know, you're pulling me away from my work. You're pulling me away from the little free time that I have when I'm just trying to unwind. It's that kind of thing. So you start asking for less and less and less until you get to a point where you just ask for nothing. And then you just take whatever is available when they choose to give it to you. It's always an uneven playing field. Like say you always go over to their house. You're always making the trip to their house, staying over at their house, and they're never coming over to yours. So even though it's so obvious that you're always putting in the effort, you wouldn't dare to ask them to come over to yours because you're like, oh, it's just such a big ask. Is it though? You do the exact same thing for them, but you actually think it's a big ask to ask them to do what you always do once. You just can't do it because you're scared that they're going to get 
get upset, angry, or reject you or leave you altogether. So you're just walking on eggshells the whole time. That's that's They've groomed you. And I've been in that situation big time. And a lot of us have been in that situation. It's a, Basically, breadcrumbing is a way of devaluing you, bringing your – in their eyes, they bring your worth down. And in your eyes, your self-worth goes down dramatically because you think this person is more important than I am. Their needs have to be met before mine. Their free time is more important. Everything, they are a priority and I come second. Often when this happens in before you start dating, so in situations where you're kind of seeing someone or you think that that person might be seeing other people as well, you definitely have not yet had the exclusivity chat. A really common thing to happen is that they get you to a point where they know for sure that you like them, that you're into them. And whenever they ask you to hang out, you're, you're available every fucking time. You wouldn't dare say I'm not available because you're so into them and they've already got you to that point where you're kind of begging to be with them, but they don't need to be with you. Like you want them more than they want you. So you're trying to impress them. You're trying to get them to like you as much as you like them. It's that kind of weird dynamic at the start of these like kind of semi-relationships, but not. So what will happen is that at the click of a finger, you are there when they want you to hang out. But when you ask them to hang out, firstly, you're terrified to even send the message. You're like, oh, how do I word it? How do I make it look like it's super casual? So if they say, no, it's fine. You ask them to hang out and often you're met with, that message being completely ignored, going unanswered until they're in the mood to message you on their terms. And often they'll message you without even apologizing for ghosting you and ignoring you on your past invitation to meet up. This is them grooming you to stop asking for things. It's saying you are available when I want you to be available, but don't you dare pull me out of my time and expect me to answer. Like I'm not going to answer you. But if you were to ignore them, in the early, early days of the relationship, because it's a little bit different later, and I'll go into that in a sec. But if you're to ignore them in this early stage, you would just be so terrified because you know that they, they, they're already the kind of person that's going to ignore a message. So if you ignore them, you're terrified that they'll never message you again. And this is kind of where orbital ghosting comes in, where then they don't message you, they disappear for weeks on end, and then where then when they're good and ready and in the mood, they'll just emerge out of thin air being like, what are you doing? out of the blue. And you're probably like, oh my God, thank God, thank God, they're not gone forever. Hi, how are you? Oh my God, long time, no no speak, all that shit, you know? Players, as in people that are seeing multiple people at once, do this really well, really well. They get people fighting for their scraps. Guys, if you're ever in a position where you notice yourself fighting for scraps, for these breadcrumbs between you and a few other people, to get the attention of someone that you've got a crush on who has no real intention of being exclusive to you, you need to really seriously reassess your situation. What are you actually, ask yourself, what am I going to achieve by fighting for these scraps? And the sad thing is when you do get the scrap, let's say that you know that multiple people are going for this one person that you've got a crush on, right? And you're kind of, you know that you're in competition. You know that this person is interested in many people and you're fighting for the scrap and where you're the one that gets that breadcrumb. You're the one that wins that night. When you get to be the one that goes home within that night or you get the one that gets the message saying, WYD, what are you doing? You feel like you've won, but you haven't won. They have won. They've won in, in manipulating you to feel that you're lucky for being selected this one evening where you're just going to be rejected again tomorrow. That's, they've won. They've won in, in the sense that they now feel in, in a greater position of power than they did before. 
because they are able to manipulate everyone. And if someone else wins, instead of being like, you know what, you're obviously not into me. This is just absolutely not something that I need for me. I need to tap the fuck out. You think, oh, what did I do wrong? How could they like me next time? What should I have said? You start doubting yourself, doubting yourself, doubting yourself. If you are in one of those situations where you like somebody, genuinely, like if you're just there for a good time, for a one night stand, you do you, love that for you. But if you like somebody, and you're in this situation where you're trying to get them to notice you, stop. Stop. If they have not noticed you, too bad. Your self-respect is so much more important than this loser's opinion of you for one night. You have to find a way to have these pep talks with you with yourself so much more often. If you fight for these breadcrumbs, what are you saying to yourself? I am worth fighting and battling it out against all these other people, hoping that they notice me. And if they do notice me, I'm excited for what? Because I grabbed their attention more so than the other people or I was more available than the other people on this one night. That's not enough. You are worth so much more than that shit. So much more than that shit. It's, It's a slap in the face. If you ever find yourself competing for someone and you've identified these breadcrumbing traits, run for the hills and go and buy a stunning candle and go home and meditate and think, fuck yeah, I'm not around that toxic energy. That's what you should be doing. The sad thing is whether it's in whether you're seeing someone or whether you're dating someone that does this, you give them the benefit of the doubt so many times, but you give yourself none. You just don't think you're worthy of more in that situation at least maybe not in every aspect of your life, but definitely in that situation. But you think that they are worthy of being forgiven a million times. So you won't forgive yourself, but you'll forgive them. If you treated yourself with half the admiration you have for these fuckwits, your life would be transformed, but you don't. So you get stuck in these cycles with these awful people because, you know, and, and it's e- once you fall into this trap with one person, unfortunately, it's easier to then fall into that trap with another person because you've kind of semi been groomed by one person. So some people think, why am I always in these situations? Because maybe it takes you longer to identify when this behavior is occurring that then you're in too deep by the time you do identify it. I mean, it's never too deep. You can always leave, but you find yourself in this situation where you might be truly in love with this person. So it's really hard for you to pull away. And the more you get cut down, the more this person cuts you down, the easier it is for them. You would think that you would get over it, but people can stay in these breadcrumbing kind of relationships for years and years and years. And it actually takes changing something inside of you because you unfortunately don't get sick of it alone because they can read when you're starting to burn out or get really upset or whatever and that's when then they drop the next gesture. That's when they do that nice thing because they ultimately still want you to stay in most cases. They want you to stay because it serves their sense of self. And if you're someone that's always doing things for them, you know, bowing down to them, it's a great life for them. So they don't want you to leave in a lot of situations, but it's for selfish purposes that they don't want you to leave. Don't be flattered when they do the gesture because they're only doing the gesture to keep that hook in you for longer so they can reap the benefits of having someone that worships the ground that they walk on. It's unfortunately got nothing to do with how good a person you are because if it did, they would actually appreciate you for the traits that you have when in reality, someone who breadcrumbs doesn't appreciate you for those traits. 
Now, another form of this is when is not necessarily through gestures, but through a change in behavior that you want from them, but it's very short lived. So, for example, you might have brought up to them like, oh, I noticed that like when you actually finally have the, 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 the confidence to bring it up to them, you might say to them or you might maybe you have a disagreement or something and you say to them, you're just on your phone every time we have dinner and it's, you know, I'd, I'd love for us to talk, but you're just always on your phone. So if they see that you're pulling away and getting a bit upset, then they're like, okay, I'm going to change. Of course, I'm going to change. So then for the next three days or week, they a week when they're not on the phone during dinner and you're like, oh my God, this person's changing. I see the light at the end of the tunnel where this is going to be a great relationship. It's falling into place. They're finally seeing that this matters to me. Give it a week and then they're back on their phone the whole time. That was them breadcrumbing you with something that you wanted. The same goes for if you say like, oh, I don't like you drinking so much. So they go off alcohol for two weeks and then they're back doing it. Or, you know, you ask like, I really just, I, we never spend quality time together. Can we please do that, you know, once a week? So they do it for a couple of weeks and then it's gone again. It's this, it's the, there's no real intention behind it, but they do it for long enough for you to get really optimistic about the relationship again and fall deeper in love with them again. If you were falling out of love, boom, they loop you back in. They know when the right time is to bite. They know, they sense you pulling away. And when you, pull, when you start pulling away enough, boom, they drop a breadcrumb. Then they've got you like putty in their hands. It's, it's, it's a fine art and they do it, it they, you know, they're not stupid. They know what they're doing. Another thing that they might do just to keep you there is to say, tomorrow we're going to have such a romantic night. I'll take you out for dinner. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then the next day rolls around. They're like, oh, I'm just so tired. But we will do it. We will do it. And then it just never happens. It's like, what? Like, fine if that was to happen in a normal, healthy relationship where people genuinely get tired. But you can tell the difference between someone who's breadcrumbing and clearly just saying it to get your hopes up so you feel excited for that 24-hour period before that dinner that never happens versus a normal relationship where you actually see, you know, a healthy pattern of doing nice things together. It's fine to then say, let's do a romantic dinner and then the next day say, I'm too tired, I can't. That's fine in a normal, healthy, loving relationship. So why do they do it? They do it mainly because most of them are narcissists, okay? Narcissists do not like themselves at all, okay? At all. They don't like themselves, but they love this false image of themselves that they want people to perceive them as this false image of who they want to be perceived as, you know? In order for them to feel good, people need to feel either intimidated or they need to feel shit about themselves or have low self-esteem because it's kind of like, you know, those people that from a non-narcissistic perspective, you know, those people that in order for them to feel good, they'll put down someone else's appearance. Like, "Mm, what's that person wearing? Why do they choose to wear that? They'll quickly try and highlight the flaws, quote unquote flaws in other people around them so they can feel a little bit better about themselves. When in reality, it's just this whole idea of they just ultimately feel shit about themselves. So instead of trying to do things that are going to build themselves up in healthy ways, they just try and destroy everyone else's image around them, at least in their mind, or at least to their inner circle around them. And they bitch, 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 gossip, 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 gossip. So I can feel a little bit better about who I am because I've just highlighted all these flaws of everyone around me. A narcissist does that on like a crazy scale. They need to devalue someone in order to feel some value, false value. They need to feel higher or more valuable than you in this false image that they have of themselves. And they need to do this to survive because no one would hang out with them, their real self because they're just not nice people. So they pretend they have this act that they put on and they're quite smart and they're very good at manipulating people. 
They also genuinely have no sympathy. So for them, they don't have remorse. If they've broken your heart, they don't care. So when people try and get like, oh, I just want to make, I just want to let them know how much they hurt me or I want them to to feel regret that they dumped me and and feel really bad that whatever they probably won't because they're on to their next victim and they just they just have no sympathy most of the time they have no sympathy they might pretend that they do when they're trying to get something out of you but in general they don't so it's very easy for them to get what they need or want out of you and then just throw the rest by the wayside your your feelings don't matter your life situation doesn't matter as long as it's serving their purpose or as long as it's serving kind of that false image that they have of themselves then they're happy enough they don't care about the rest so sometimes it feels like they're ruthless and the reason it feels that way is because they absolutely are ruthless it's this crazy level of entitlement to have people be props to get them to be as close to this image that they hold of themselves Orbital ghosters do that. Breadcrumbing people do that. Love bombers do that. Narcissists in general do that. So what do you do in this situation? Number one, probably properly acknowledge it. Understand when it is actually happening to you and really kind of tease out the difference between legitimate breadcrumbing is everything I explained and someone displaying maybe one of those traits occasionally but in a healthy relationship because there is a big difference like I said someone in a healthy relationship might for example might not use their phone during dinner they might be great in every other aspect but they always use their phone if you say please don't use your phone um, and then they don't do it for a week and then they start doing it that in isolation is not necessarily breadcrumbing, but it's a combination of everything I've spoken about. It's this tactic to manipulate you, to make you feel that everything that you do is expected and everything they do is a bonus, even if it's the absolute bare minimum, okay? So learn to truly, truly identify it. If you haven't already with this episode, go and look it up. There's, you know, there's all these different articles online about it as well. So you can definitely kind of do a deeper dive into what exactly the traits are, but I pretty much have some summarized it all but definitely go study it deeper if you're interested the next thing you need to realize is that if they truly are a breadcrumber narcissist you need to kill all hope hope is a weak dog when it comes to dealing with a toxic person and a narcissist hope is a weak dog that's going to drag you down into the ditches of fucking self um, doubt and self-loathing okay get out get rid of the hope kill hope dead in the water Okay, it keeps you invested in this dead end situation. Okay, you have to understand that if they truly are exactly what I explained and a narcissist, they will not change. Not for you, not for the relationship because they don't have sympathy. They don't understand slash care how we could actually benefit you mutually if they were to change. Okay. Another thing that you should be doing once you've killed all hope is you've got to start to really find your value outside of the relationship. And that's going to help you distance yourself from this person and eventually leave the person. And if you're not fully in a relationship with the person, it's going to help you no longer text that person back um, and really fully distance yourself so you don't get stuck in this loop of wanting to see them or go on a date when they when they just say, what doing in a fucking text message at two o'clock in the morning, you know? Start to really find your value outside of that. Hang around with people that make you feel really good. Start getting involved in things that make you truly truly happy go back um, go back to that episode that I do on finding your purpose and all of that and you're going to start to really get like a really um, well-rounded 
way of finding your value internally and through the people that are, you know, meaningful to you that, you know, have your best interest at heart and things like that and through your purpose as well. So that's going to be very helpful for you as well. Go listen to all the self-love episodes. That's going to help as well build up your your relationship with yourself because that really does get cut down when you're around someone like this big time. And you've got to ask yourself like Think about it. Once breadcrumbing starts, it's actually, it's game over. They just want to do the bare minimum. They get away with doing the bare minimum. So why would they change? They're good at getting people to do this. So unfortunately for you, well, actually fortunately because you get out of it, but if you leave, they're going to just find the next victim to do it. You know, if you were to say the only way we're going to be together is if you put in all this work and do all this change, firstly, you yourself know that they're not going to do that. That's why you've never asked that of them in the past. But secondly, even if you did do that, that if they did try and change, it would last for the smallest amount of time and then they just go back to their old ways because they are ultimately a narcissist and they're not going to change. So that's where you need to really identify if that's what's happening, if they are a narcissist. And if that's the case, there is no changing it, there is no fixing it and you need to kind of tap the fuck out. All right, guys, I hope that that was helpful for you. I hope that you well, enjoyed the episode, but found it, you know, useful and maybe identified things that maybe this has happened to you in the past, or you've kind of semi seen someone or dated someone like this, or maybe your friend or someone that you know is going through this right now. Guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And I'll do my beautiful little shout out to my listeners, my beans around the world. We've got Oslo in Norway. How sick is that? We've got Bordeaux in France. Bonjour. Helsinki in Finland. My Miami in the US and Byron Bay in Australia. I love you guys so much, my beautiful global beans. Guys, I'll speak to you on Monday. Love you so much. And as always, remember, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.